That's a pile of shit, really. Anyway, I've started recording. Um, Dan, hello. Hi, how are you doing, Steve? I'm loving life. Loving life. I am. It's too easy to be negative about 2020. I think I've had a pretty good year. Um, I squeezed all my drinking into three months, but, um, you know, I've done it. You've been playing The Last of Us 2, haven't you? How many times um, have you actually played it? You're doing your stew voice. <laughs> it's a little bit off-putted. Hello. You literally Welcome. said the same thing before we were recording. It sounded like how you really are. And now you're in your... Um, <laughs> people are listening to Look, me. The, no, nothing meta. Carry on. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. I've played Last of Us 2 all the way through twice so far. Why have you played it twice? Right. So I think I'm just going to prefix this conversation for all our listeners and say this will include spoilers for The Last of Us 2. If you don't want to be spoiled for The Last of Us 2, don't listen to this. Um, and, and what is The Last of Us 2? It's a video game, right? It's a video game. If you And I, I think I can actually have this conversation without giving away any significant spoilers for The Last of Us, which is also brilliant. But it's impossible to have this conversation without giving away spoilers for The Last of Us 2. So if you listen, you just need to accept that. Uh, and Stu, are you okay with that? I'm okay with it. I'm not going to. You, you haven't even played The Last of Us, have you? So I've got it now because it came out on um, PlayStation Plus. And that's the only real way I buy PlayStation games. Yeah. So, so knowing you and your ability at information retention, if you ever get to the point where you play The Last of Us and then The Last of Us 2, I guarantee you'll have forgotten this conversation anyway. So it won't matter. Yeah. I only remember the interesting people in my life. <laughs> You should start a podcast with them. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to. They don't find me interesting. So, unfortunately... You know when you balloon What you said is we're, we're, this is a podcast between two people that everyone else thinks is dull. <laughs> but you know what's happening? You're laughing really loud there and your mic is too close to your mouth. Okay, I'm moving so, my mic. I'm moving my mic. So, so when you turn into Dan Laughter, um, your mic quiets you. <laughs> you laugh down. And it really vanishes. <laughs> and I know that's happening because I know you, but nobody else knows that of all of our listeners is my mum. Does your mum listen to this? I uh, know, I don't think so. She's not on Facebook or anything, so she doesn't know I does do it. But hi, mum. Hi, Steve's mum. Right, anyway, so yes, The Last of Us 2. So I think The Last of Us 2 is absolutely insanely good. Um, it's It's... It's bordering on flawless for me, as not just as a game, but as an artistic experience. Um, but why? 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 Why is it an artistic experience? Um, okay, good question. On a number of levels. Firstly, it's the first game I've ever played, and I've, I've got on a PS4 Pro, where you're like standing next to a tree, and you can go, "Wow, that tree is beautiful. I'm going to look at the tree more closely." And you can go up to the tree, you can look at it, and you can see it moving in the wind, and you can look at the detail, and you can look at the individual leaves. And you, you, you actually can just... The graphics are at a level where you can just enjoy the environment and just being there, and you can like look at a sort of like a, a magnificent skyline, and it, it actually... I won't say it quite feels real because it's, it's it's not the same as if it was actually real, but it's it's close enough that you can get some real enjoyment from it. Um, I also think, having played it, it's the closest experience in art to reading a novel. Um, I don't know if you, you 
I know you read a lot, but I don't know if you read many novels. Um, I, I I'm not read... really a, <clears throat> a, a a non-fact person. No, I know. Fact, I, I, I heard I, me I, talk you... about. Oh no, we're talking at the same time. It's me first. Sorry, go on. I am. Um, I don't like that fiction is called fiction. I think facts should be called faction, and then it should be non-faction for for fiction. I mean, it's the wrong way around. Fair enough. Okay. But, okay, I used to read a lot of novels when I was younger. I don't read as much now as I should do, um, but I'm quite familiar with reading novels. And one thing about reading a novel, particularly if it's very much focused on the point of view of one character, is that if you re- if you get really sort of sucked into it and consumed by it, then you almost feel like you're viewing the story through the eyes of the character and you're sort of like almost living their life through the story. And The Last of Us 2 is one of the first games I remember playing where the quality of the storyline and the characters and the acting and the detail of the universe it puts you in is such that you have a similar kind of shared experience of actually living someone else's life through the story. Um, Mm. And, you know, for me, that qualifies as art. Um, The other thing I thought was really interesting about Last of Us 2 is how it utterly divided opinion amongst gaming fans as to whether it was any good or not. Because well, you had, What's had the loads big... of crit- well, let me say it had loads of critical acclaim, um, almost universally across the board. The critics said, you know, this game is wonderful, and it won like the Game of the Year awards and a bunch of other awards for it. But there was absolutely vociferous negative reaction from uh, part parts of the fan base. I mean, a lot of people said we like Last of Us One, but this Last of Us Two is terrible. Um, and I think that's interesting in and of itself as well. So why do you think it got... So, you know, the, the thing I like here is the, the Rotten Tomato um, method of, of choosing movies and shows to watch because you go into Rotten Tomato and search for the film and you've both got the critic score and the audience score. And, and you know, if I tend to find that if you've got a high audience score and a low critic score, it can be okay. But if you've got the other way around, then, you know, you've got a high critic, low audience score, then I always believe that the critics have got it wrong. But the model you're talking about, if you translated this to movies, I would still think, well, the critics have said this is good, but fans have not liked it, which um, pushes me towards, is this just rotten eggs? Is it like, we loved this perfect, beautiful game before, why have you even touched it again? Or what? why do you think the fans didn't like it? Or a section of the fans didn't like it? Well, there's a number, I think that, I think there's the publicly stated reasons and then there's the possibly the the non-stated reasons. So first of all, and this is where the spoilers get big, is that the main character in The Last of Us is um, a man called Joel and he travels across America with uh, a young girl called Ellie. Now, in The Last of Us Part 2, you play as Ellie and in basically the first hour of the game, Joel gets killed. And there's a huge number of fans who go, and I want, was waiting for years to play this game so I could play more as Joel, and you've just gone and killed him. And I think there's a huge backlash against people who's not necessarily the expectation, but they wanted to happen was to like have, have another Joel story. And it wasn't a Joel story. It was Ellie's story about getting revenge for Joel's death. And there was a huge number of people who basically said, this isn't what I wanted. Now, never mind the fact that... Um, you know, it, 
it, that w- whether it's what they wanted doesn't have an impact on whether it's a good game. They were just going, I just this isn't what I wanted, and therefore I don't like it. Um, but in terms of the unstated reasons, um, the main character Ellie is a lesbian. Um, there's another character in it who's sort of like trans. It, 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 it's, tra- it's kind of like very sort of like right on in its approach to things, and you know you do suspect that possibly not all of the negative reviews are come from sort of like people with a sort of more sort of like right wing view of things, and they don't they, they don't want to play as lesbians, and you know that that completely turns them off. But I suspect that a lot of it comes from there as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean. It's, it sounds great to me. I, I love a good um, twist in the tale. Uh, I don't understand. Well, and I understand um, that the gaming audience in general is a bit scandalous at times, aren't they? You know, they throw people out of communities and, well, exactly. stuff. and it doesn't recommend Gamergate thing. And it, it's very vociferous. And you just don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is like stirred up by people who, who just want to cause trouble and you use this like online controversy to make a name for themselves. Yeah. You've made me want to play the game, but I mean, if I was going to play this, would I play the first one first? As soon as I've got Well, it? I'll tell you what happened. Well, don't I tell played... what, be careful. Yeah, no. So I played the last of us one where for the first one, probably about 2004. I think it came out in 2013, but I didn't play it till about 2014. And I only played it through once at the time. Um, partly because it's a little bit of a harrowing experience, so you don't necessarily want to play it over and over. And then when The Last of Us Part Two came out, I played it all the way through pretty much as soon as it came out. And playing through it made me want to go back and play The Last of Us again because there's lots of reference in The Last of Us Part Two to things that happened in the first one that I couldn't quite remember, having not played it for four or five years. So I, th- so I want to go back and play it and spend some more time with Joel because he's a great character and it's a way of doing that. And then having finished The Last of Us Part 1, I thought, now I've done that, I'll play The Last of Us Part 2 through again with all those references sort of in mind. So I've essentially played two, then one, then two in fairly short order. So, you know, you could play two first and then go back to one, but it'd make a lot more sense to play one first. But another thing that I wanted to mention, which, again, this is going to be very massive spoilers for Part 2, is that there were a bunch of people who said, the story doesn't make sense, it doesn't work. Um... And one thing that's really great about part two, which is a massive spoiler, um, is so the, the, the basic premise of the game is it's Ellie's revenge story against the people who killed Joel. Yeah. And you play. And she's probably, a child. She's a well, child. Well, by the time, she's supposed to be like 18 or 19 in part two. She's a child in part one, but part two comes a few years after. So she's like 18 or 19. Um, and like the first sort of like 10, 15 hours of gameplay is basically her going to Seattle to, um, you know, track down the group that killed Joel and get revenge on them. And she's like going around, she's tracking down these people and basically executing them. And, you know, you're kind of on her side because you like Joel and, you know, you, you empathize with her experience of when Joel's killed. But then like 15 hours into the game, it, but you basically then get put it in the position of playing this girl called Abby, who's the one who killed Joel. And you basically play as her side from her point of view for about 10 or 15 hours. And for me, that worked really well because whereas you start playing the game with one person's point of view, you then see totally see the other person's side and they're like fully fleshed out characters. They've got a backstory. You see where they're coming from. 
and you understand the motivations. And by the time you've played as Abby for sort of 10 hours, you basically go and actually, you know, Abby's not in the wrong either. Um, this is just two people who each have their own point of view. And if anything, you know, Ellie is the bad guy. Um, but in uh, multiple reviews I read, there were a bunch of people going, I didn't like playing as Abby. Why am I playing as the bad guy? And other reviews said, you know, um, why did we have this pointless 10-hour flashback? And the whole point of the this and the whole point of the game is it's going there's two antagonists on either side here and you actually get to experience life as both of them and empathize with both of them and actually you know you end up in a situation where you don't want either of them to win because you know you want them to back down and the actual core of the story is about the cycle of violence and ending the cycle of violence um neil Druckmann, the, the basically the main creative force behind it i think he grew up in israel and there's lots of parallels in it between um the sort of like uh israeli palestinian conflict um because in the game in seattle there's like two warring factions which are kind of loosely you know you can draw parallels between the israelis and the palestines and that you've got all that going on while you've got this story going on through it and it's all about the cycle of violence and how you end the cycle of violence. Because obviously the Israelis, the Palestinians do something to the Israelis, the Israelis retaliate, the Palestinians then retaliate to the Israelis. And it just keeps going on and on forever. And that's exactly what this game is about. It's that someone does something to someone, someone does something in revenge, someone else does something in revenge. And it's, it basically is trying to... It's like showing the futility. It, it's, it yeah, sure. exactly, showing the futility. And and trying to get the characters to a point where they stop. And I thought it did that brilliantly. Um, but then some people were going, what, what, why am I playing as the bad guy? <laughs> this is pointless. It's a waste of my time. And I think that some people are just fundamentally missing the point of what's going on, which also makes you think that the people who said in that in reviews, uh, I mean, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but th those people are wrong because they've just missed the entire point of the artistic experience. Um, so yeah, and one the, the the other thing I want to say about The Last of Us Part Two, and then I think we should probably move on to something else, is another thing it does is that in the first part, when you're playing as Ellie, you kill a bunch of people who are like part of the group who kill Joel, and you don't really find a lot about them. They're just like not NPCs, um, you know, have a few lines of dialogue, and they're, they're, you know, they, they exist as real characters, but yeah, yeah, like they know a lot about. Red-shirted ensigns. Yeah, and then you kill them. <laughs> yeah. And then in the Abbey section, you actually find out a lot more about them and you actually find out about their sort of like fully fleshed nature and their backstories after Ellie's already killed. You've killed them as Ellie earlier in the game. Yeah. I can remember another review saying, this was done the wrong way round. What you should have done, what they should have done is you should have found out what they're like in this great greater depth before Ellie had the chance to kill them, because when you killed them, you didn't realise who you were killing. But I actually think this was a point of genius. And, I, and if anything, this might be The Last of Us Part II's greatest triumph in that it's actually very tragic sort of spending time with these characters that you know you've already killed. And it, it actually makes you regret the fact that you killed them earlier and... And um, you build up this empathy for these characters you killed. And then sort of one step from that is, wait a minute, if the characters I killed in this particular game all had all this backstory and I'm going to regret for it, 
what about all the other characters I've ever killed in like other games and Call of Duty and, and any any game where you have enemies that you know are not that well developed you don't know a lot about and you're sort of just blowing them away you're thinking wait a minute they all have backstories and another step from there it sort of takes you into real life and you go you know that person on the train who annoyed me by pushing front of me actually they've got their own backstory I just don't happen to know about it and I actually think it's making a very profound point about saying you know if you don't know much about someone whether it's a computer game character who you're who you're like blasting away with a shotgun or it's someone in real life you, who you feel annoyance at because they've done something to you. They've got their own sort of massive backstory and their own reasons for being how they are and their own reasons for why they're acting like they are on that day. And you don't normally consider it. And this process in the game of it making you like go through these um, stages where you're killing these people and you find out about them later, I think had a, is a very profound way of going you know you acted like this but what about all these aspects of them you just did not know about and you know and on this there was a there were two occurrences this week of where um well i'll step back i remember working on varnish you know varnish it makes websites quicker um wow this is a left turn but go on (laughs) uh no years ago and you'd get emails from the the chief coder um and varnish whose name escapes me at the minute and his, um, his sign-off was something along the lines of never attribute to malice what can easily be attributed to incompetence or something like that. Probably, maybe yeah. it wasn't as strong as incompetence, but basically incompetence. And I said that um, to, to people at my work this week twice. And they got wound up about receiving something quite late just before a deadline for something. So we couldn't act upon that information really quickly for a deadline or, and also another case where we thought something was being done in the wrong way. And, and, and therefore the, the default assumption was that someone was not very intelligent or something like that. And I was like, no, 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 you've got no idea. And I, and I spouted out there, you know, never attribute uh, line. And I think, having a little saying or, or having a little thing to, to make, to remind you of um, that you've got no idea what's been going on in someone's head for the entire day. Um, that's led them to this snap decision or this late reaction, or you don't know what's happening in people's lives. You just got to give everyone a massive chunk of space and, and, and let people be. And that, you know, it's like road rage. I rarely react. I, I say rarely cause I have, but, rarely react to road rage you just think okay well whatever i just i just don't react to it other people you see lots of people reacting to it or they'll they'll swear at people or they start swearing back or they even chase people back and all this sort of stuff it's mental it's totally crazy and like would what other situation in life where where someone mildly annoys you so you're going to put your life at risk to chase them (laughs) yeah it's insane but um but there's something about being in a car and because you're compartmentalized, you can't, uh, you kind of feel like, you know, your, your actions don't have the same uh, consequences if you're outside of the car, but obviously they completely do. if not more so because you're driving a very heavy piece of metal that goes very fast. Yeah. And that crumple, you know, so mm. like, you're, you're not that safe in them, are they? Okay. So, I don't want to do a review of 2020 or anything like that. It's pointless. Everybody will be doing that sort of silly stuff. But what 
what has turned out better for you because of all of this, right? I don't want to talk about stupid viruses. No, you're right. Uh, I'm sure everyone's got enough to say about pandemics and COVID and lockdowns, which I, I don't think I've got anything particularly. Yeah, in, it's it's an interesting contribute there. But one one thing that's interesting this year is is because of the move to more people working from home. Um, my potential clients seem to have no expectation of meeting in real life now. And it's easier to have conversations with people in far-flung places, especially North America, uh, about potential projects. And it feels like the world has opened up as a potential market for people wanting to buy my services. And, you know, that, that's kind of the main positive for me. Yeah, there are lots of positives, aren't there? I think um, some of mine are quite personal, but we've been working out over 10 years. I mean, you have as well, haven't you? Um, yeah. Uh, and we're just about to finish our 11th year. And um, one of the things that I was always a bit weird about was about my kids coming into my office and, and, and being seen on a camera or being heard in the background or running up and down the stairs in the same house and all of this. I was always a little bit too um, control. Controlling is the wrong word, right? Because they would do it anyway. Um, but I was always nervous about this and especially on with uh, some of the other people that I work with as well hoping that it wouldn't happen and you know and of course it sometimes happened then people rush to turn their video off or something like that and we've had a few customers this year who've been interrupted I mean I I literally said yahoo or woohoo or something when that do you remember there was the guy on BBC News? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sat, do, actually. That, for me, was the global watershed moment for working at home. Because you know that stuff happens in offices. I, when I was working at The Economist, the salespeople had a cowbell. They were programming, right? <laughs> programming, right. So, I'm, yeah, I've got to move that up there. I've got to, I've got to store that. I've got to calculate this thing and store that. And so it's, it's all in your head. And, you, you know... You, you create these sort of bubbles of logic in your head and you're about to write them all down and then someone rings a cowbell. Dong, 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 dong. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, well, that's all gone. But congratulations on selling a classified, you morons. You know, so this this like whole idea that the, that the office was this more productive, more collaborative place is rubbish. And the kids interrupting you is, is, is way less than you being interrupted by people telling you to go for a coffee, people walking past you know this whole idea that that hearing conversation in the office creates serendipity no it doesn't it creates interruptions right yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean i think it, the, th the thing about people who go oh i don't like working from home because i miss out on this that and the other i mean there probably are some things you do miss out on but i think certainly for people in our sort of profession it's massively outweighed by the benefits and the the fewer interruptions and, and you know the ability to focus um, yeah. And I think there probably is something about, you know, the casual conversations you have in offices or you're passing people's desks. But, you know, it's, it's you know, what, what, what you lose with one hand, you take with the other, if I'm well, using my metaphors. Yeah, I mean, I was on the way to something. But the thing I was on the way to is that I've become completely relaxed about this. I've seen my customers' kids. I've enjoyed seeing them. I've said hi to them. I like saying hi to them. I've seen all sorts of people sat sat in rooms. We had a call with one guy, a fabulous guy who's now a customer. And uh, his wife is a set designer or prop designer. But I also think she's 
Um, she, she's a dancer. I can't remember what that is. Some sort of belly dancer or something like this. I can't remember. So he was in their spare room. In the spare room was a diamante uh, encrusted bath and some belly dancing <laughs> costumes behind him. And we were having quite a serious Zoom call um, about, you know, well, we can do this for you and you can do this and our exchange would be this and, you know, the normal stuff. Um, yeah. And there was basically a, pot, a shiny bath behind him and uh, like a belly dancer's costume hanging up on on a hanger and i just loved that insight into the world right and and just seeing people's kids coming in and saying hello you know we've been on calls and your daughter's coming and i have a, like a five minute chat and i love seeing her and we've seen this on customers i've had customers literally pick their laptops and walk into other rooms to talk to their kids and then come back you know but they've taken the laptop with them to talk to them yeah yeah <laughs> you know? no i i think it's a it's a much better world where that's normal and it's fine and people don't think oh if that person's got children around they might not be doing the work properly i know it's, but then i think that all feeds into the whole thing about you know the people who only think you're working properly if they can see you at your desk rather than measuring you on your output are you know that that's that's not the right way to get the best thing out of people. Yeah. Again, so, may, maybe it's true in some industries. I can't speak for ones I've never worked in, but certainly in the industry we work in, it makes far more sense to measure people on their output rather than the time spent at a desk. Oh yeah, I would say four other things probably tries to. I, don't, I mean, I don't think we measure measure in that same way. Yeah, but, I mean, you get, then you get into the whole thing about how do you measure productivity. But if you, if you don't measure it formally and you just, you know, think about who's actually delivering value and have they delivered value in the last, you know, X period of time, I don't think it's that hard, certainly at the sort of company size that you have, to, to do that. Well, I want to I jump into that a little bit. So, for instance, we've got customers and... Some of the customers have got a broad mix, which I think is the most healthy of, you know, quite expensive people, quite cheap people who are early on in their careers and quite cheap people who are later on in their careers, um, which I think, you know, arguably that is, that is a bit of a problem. Um, and I think those companies who have purposefully tried to have a less expensive workforce makes total business sense, makes total business sense. I think they're the ones who have struggled more because their initial mindset is that they know that they're spending less money, that they're trying to do things by having a company structure to control the work rather than having just talented people doing the work. And I don't mean that if you earn less money, you're less talented, but there's, there's, there's some rough cloudy line here, isn't there? Yeah. You know? there's, there's probably some broad correlation over you know a wide number of people yeah so and i've seen that the companies that we work for of course this is a, this is only my view of our customers right um so it could be wrong on a national scale but the companies that employ people and i'm not talking about employing people that are on mass amounts of money but the companies that employ people and you just think you know you're pretty talented you'll be doing well you're pretty talented you'll be doing well they have barely even had hiccups with this change of practice because it was always about people doing work and people shipping and finishing and, uh, and contributing, you know, and you see specific departments doing well as well. You know, in general, I've seen IT departments just not even blink. They just, it doesn't matter, you know, and even 
I mean, some, I think IT departments have had some serious challenges if we accept all people who work in the NHS and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, but they've had some serious challenges and they've just done it. Like, I, did I tell you right at the start about how, um, I probably shouldn't say their name, but a very large company that makes engines for planes had people driving to the car park, not going into the Oh, office. yeah, no, you did tell me that one. Yeah. <laughs> right, and using the Wi-Fi from the car park because they weren't allowed to go into the office, but the VPN wasn't powerful enough for them to get. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. No, that's crazy. I mean, I think what you're saying, it kind of goes back to Joel Spolsky's hiring practices where he looks at people who, smart, who are smart and get things done. Yeah. And I kind of think if you're smart and you get things done, you're, you're going to be smart and do things wherever you are, you know, whether you're at home or in an office or whatever the situation. Whereas if you're not smart or you don't have that, you know, whatever it is in you that makes you get things done, then working from home is going to work less well, well for you. Mm. And, and the, the people who either don't get things done or aren't smart are the people who probably do need that sort of corporate structure around them to kind of, you know, grease the wheels of, get, of getting any value out of them. Yeah, and I wonder whether any of these companies are learning a lesson. Are they probably learning not. a lesson there? <laughs> I, can't, I think any group of <laughs> any group of people, particularly companies at a certain size, I think are just really quite dumb and very hard to change. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I can't call them dumb. What I would say is they find it hard to steer the ship. You know, I can't call them dumb. They got to where they got to that big. You, you and I know how hard it is to grow a company. They got to that size. Yeah. That, that was an achievement in the first place. But I think in, you know, I mean, I, I've got to think about this. Full Fat Things, my, my company, doesn't really hire uh, brand, new, um, brand new people like straight out of uni or anything like that because we're all working at home. And, I ha and this is all on me. I haven't really figured out how to give them that attention that you need when you're right at the start of your career. Mm. So it's almost like I just accept uh, a higher salary requirement, a higher level of experience. I mean, actually, not all people. We, we have hired one grad, but I knew her before she joined. I knew that she was a really intelligent person and that she would, she would make progress no matter what, you know, and she has. She's bloody amazing. Yeah. Um, so I find, I find that stuff fascinating. So, so for you, you're basically saying that um, you, you, you like working at home. You were already working at home. But now because there's less of an expectation of you going and shaking hands and being in an office for a bit, you're actually able to attract more international customers. Yeah, I mean, even though I work from home, um, there's certainly something particularly at the beginning of a project about you know having a workshop in a room together and kind of forming some sort of like uh, collective understanding of what you're trying to achieve. And it definitely is easier to do that when you're in the same physical space as someone and you can like draw things on walls and whiteboards and post-its and point at things. Um, yeah. It's definitely easier doing that in real life than over a Zoom. But because we can't really do that stuff now, so there's no expectation that'll happen. Whereas before, you know, most of my clients would be, if not London-based, some people who could like travel to London. Now people are going, uh, like get in touch from like North America, Canada, the States, and going, hey, I've got a project. Shall we have a Zoom call about it? And mm. they're just, just, 
they are probably also thinking, I've got the whole world open to me now because I'm not going to meet anyone. And therefore, you know, if they come across me and they're like, look at what it sounds like I do, they get in touch. That's interesting. You know, I've just registered this year, well, my company's registered to go on to G Cloud, which for our North American listeners is um, is a government, a UK government method of uh, hiring um, talent to build stuff. Uh, but you've already, you've already been vetted. You've already jumped through all of the various hoops to be accredited onto this program. And um, and actually, a, a, an alarming number of times you get asked whether you're going to subcontract any of this out of the country or subcontract it out the back door in some way. And I find that. I, I wonder why they care. I suspect they care that the money's staying in the UK economy, but, you know, perhaps there's... Perhaps it's more than that. I don't know. It's not like we're trying to build MI6's, you know, camera lenses or something, is it? You know, we're just <laughs> building apps and websites and stuff. I'd say what um, it's made me focus more on marketing and, and, and like classic sales because all up until um, uh, being largely home-based, I would be traveling around and meeting people. I'd be going to evening events and, meetups that's where you'd meet people at conferences and stuff like that i've really missed the conferencing this year i i typically go to one conference minimum every year i like to go to like an industry conference and and also that we were mostly with the product drupal we always go to the drupal conference i love it i mean sure it's an, ex, an excuse to get drunk and you can have loads of fun but also you meet real people real customers and you know half of our team we met at DrupalCon. um so, you know, and I love going to the tech conferences with you, you know, when we go to so like business of software, my God, I love that conference. It's so, it just feels like I need to be at it every year. Um, I went this year and it was on Zoom and it was great, but it wasn't quite the same. No, it wasn't. I mean, I, I enjoyed it and I got something out of it, but again, it's different to going and having a talk and then sitting and having dinner with the people you get the talk with. So you can talk about it and then talk shop with them face to face. Yeah, there was some fabulous. Um, I remember sitting next to some guy and he was really humble. I think he was sat opposite. No, we sat we sat with the guy who writes Todoist. And I used yeah. Todoist. I'm a paying, I pay for like the corporate yeah, yeah. Todoist. And we sat with him and I wrote and I realized I'm like, I use your software every bloody day. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, every day. Um, you know, um, is there anything else from this year that's um, that's been good, that's led to good things for you? Um, <laughs> I can't think of anything else. Well, I know no, something. I, that I mean, we... I, I, generally, I mean, you know, 2020 has been a bit shit for a lot of people, but I, I generally feel like I've had a pretty good year. I've had an all right year. I got two cats. I love cats. Oh, yeah, and... I got one cat. <laughs> yeah, so I win there. But um, <laughs> uh, And... And I, you know, when I got them, I thought, oh, they'll come and sit in the office with me and all of this. <laughs> they never do. Ah, oh, well, then I win because my cat's always coming and sitting on my lap. Um, usually when I don't want it to, because I'm doing some hard thinking and suddenly this thing jumps in my lap and slightly digs in its claws, which, again, sort of pops all your mental models you've got built into your head. Yeah. Oh, my, mine might come in if I leave the door open and sort of walk around. But if I even look at them, they'll run off. <laughs> <laughs> They don't want picking up. Um, so I, I've been happy to get 
the pets. The kids, the kids have loved having cats. I like it in the evening as well. Um, you yeah, know, there's something to... relaxing about stroking a cat. I don't know why. And I'll tell you another thing that um, I've really enjoyed recently. And I know you can get a lot of this stuff from podcasts, but it's really professionally put together. Is I've bought Masterclass with masterclass.com which is video courses. <laughs> it almost sounds like you're getting into an advert for it, but go on. Oh, well, yeah, I, honestly. Masterclass.com. Use your code, Stu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's courses that you can take, but it's just video courses. So you're just watching them and they're split up um, in, um, you know, maybe 15 minute chunks or whatever. So you can just sit down and watch one. So, I've just been I've just been really enjoying it. And there's all sorts of fabulous people on there, you know, doing different things. So I've been watching one from Will Wright. I think it's Will Wright, um, who did The Sims. And he does not talk technically about what it's like to build a video game. He talks about how he had to get his mindset right and what type of books he read, not about video games or technology, but about like um psychology to be able to write the, the sims you know a, a game about what people do and how they feel and and all of this sort of stuff and there's all sorts of fascinating stuff on there there's stuff like ballet dancers teaching you how to um do ballet which i haven't watched um <laughs> i was gonna say i can't really pitch that but like some of the stuff i want to i quite want to watch even though i'm i'm never going to do it but like ron mm. howard tells you how to make a movie that's, yeah no i can that, imagine that is fascinating. really fascinating but I'm probably not going to make a movie, but I, you know, someone I really want to watch is Anna Wintour. Um, she's the Vogue editor. Um, and she's got this whole thing about why fashion is important and all of this and stuff. And it's actually a course. It's how to look good or, or whatever. I don't know. Um, there's just some really cool stuff on it. So I, I bought it and I've been watching it. And, um, you know, because, if this was last this I've lost it. If this was last year, I would have spent the year driving around listening to audiobooks. And I've still been listening to some audiobooks. But I would have been driving around and going to different places. And there's reading, but I also really enjoy taking the audiobooks because then I can drive for hours and get there almost immediately, if you get what I mean. Mm. Um, because I just get lost in the audiobooks. I've pretty much stopped listening to music in the car. Um and, you know, if I'm popping down the road five minutes, I'll just put the radio on or something. But car music has gone for me because I just listen to, I just soak up new books, new information, new stuff, you know. Um, and as, I've started, as, long as, as long as it's non-faction. No, as long as yeah. it's faction. Faction. <laughs> it's, it's faction. Um, and I've started doing that with, um, with Masterclass. Obviously not driving. I'm doing it at home. But I'm watching it here and there. And it's just fabulous. I've also bought a book on how to write a book. Um, which is quite meta. I'm thinking about writing a book. What would you write a book about? I don't know. I haven't read the book about writing a book yet. <laughs> so you're hoping the book about writing a book gives you the idea of what you want to write about? Well, I've got, I mean, I've got a lot to, um, I've got a lot to say on most topics where I know very little about them. So I was wondering about writing a general book. Like, it's literally called the general book with like tiny little chapters on lots of different things. Okay, interesting. But but all fact. <laughs> well, all opinion on fact. I mean, like, you know, when you read, I don't read stories specifically, although I should, I know I should. I don't really read stories, but I'll read um, 
books that are written about people that lived hundreds of years ago. So it's not all. Oh, hold exactly on, J- Jane's ringing. You might want to stop the record for a second. Can you do that? Oh, yeah. Hello? I can't believe you've answered the phone. Yeah, I'm here. Did yeah. you figure out how to pause recording? I've started recording again. Okay. Jane rang and I ignored it, but then she rang again immediately. I thought, oh, no, it might be important. So okay. I thought I'd better answer it. And it turned out not to be important, but there you go. And Jane is your chiropodist. That's correct. <laughs> okay. I think we were doing anyway. Yeah, we're probably done. I feel like we've gone witted on long enough. Okay. Right. Have a good Christmas. You too, dude. See you later. See ya. Bye. Hang on. Now you've got to stop recording it. I've got-